0: So maybe like a year and a half ago, uh, my wife and I were, we were living in Medford at the time, and we had a house with a garage. We parked the car in the garage, our van. And so we load the kids up, and I don't remember where we're going, doesn't matter. Once again, we load the kids up, they're all in there, they're all buckled, and they're all kind of at that age where they don't know how to unbuckle themselves yet. Uh, so we get in there, the car's running, we run into the house or something to do something and come back, and the van is locked. And the kids are inside and it's running in the garage, right? Kind of have this freak out moment. You're like, oh my gosh, what do we do? How are we going to get in? So, you know, everything goes through your head. Like, do, do we break the window? Like, do we call a tow truck? Like, what do we do? So... First thing we did was we tried to teach Mila how to unbuckle herself from her harness, which was not gonna work. Uh, just, we have like tinted windows, and she was not paying attention. And she was trying, and we're like, "Okay, well, Plan B." I'm like, well, no, I really don't want to break the window unless I have to. So oh, we're freaking out. We're freaking out. We call the tow truck. We call the tow truck, and the tow truck's on its way. And I told him, I kind of played it up. I'm like, "Hey, we got kids in the car. Like, you gotta come. Like, you gotta come now." Okay, we can all be there. Now I had I had keys in my pocket, right, and I knew that I had keys, but the keys that I had, you know, they didn't, they didn't have the clicker, you know what I mean, like, you know, this thing that opens the door, and, and is, there's no other way to open the door unless you have the clicker, right? Okay, so I had this thing in my pocket, and I knew that I had this thing in my pocket, but my, you know, my 31-year-old millennial brain... Couldn't imagine that there was any possible way to get into the car without the remote. <laughs> and I realized that about five minutes before the tow truck, actually, the tow truck actually got there. I think I realized it right as the tow truck was pulling up. And I was like, oh, I can open the door with the key. The key is so there and it's so accessible. It was designed for this. This is what doors do, you know? I felt so stupid. I didn't even tell the tow truck driver. I was just like, oh, we figured it out. We got it. We found a key. <laughs> you know, I just, because I felt so ridiculous. And... Uh, Anyways, so my point is, my point is that sometimes, uh, am I ringing a little bit? Can you just turn me down just a tad bit, Steve? Um, Sometimes the most obvious solutions to things are right in front of us. And sometimes the most, the, the key to what we actually need isn't something out there that we have to freak out and go find and discover. It was actually designed and it was put in our hand and it was given to us. So right now we're talking about the church, we're calling this kind of body life, part two. We looked at it last week, and the function of the church, and, and this is kind of our vision reset for the year. We're, just, we're asking the, the hard questions of what is the church, and how do we know if we're doing it right, and, and, and how do we know if Philippi is healthy, and how do we know if we're headed the right direction? And as I've been studying this week and looking at really God's design for the church and how it's meant to grow and how it's meant to, to to build itself up, I feel like I'm having this moment where I had this key in my pocket the whole time, and I was fiddling with something else, thinking that that maybe that was the way to get into the van. But in reality, the key was there the whole time. And, and you know what it is? The key. It's you guys. It's the body of Christ. It's it's plain as day in the scriptures. I'm digging into it. I'm realizing that the key to a healthy church, the key to a growing church, and when I say growing, I don't just necessarily mean numbers. I mean growing in health and maturity. The key is accessing the body. The body is how a church grows. The body is how it builds up. It's just like this simple, obvious thing. But for some reason, it just doesn't seem to be that obvious to me oftentimes and others. So we're in this post-Christian cultural moment right now where our, our country is moving out of what is probably better called Christendom, where, you know, church um, used to be sort of a primary ethos or part of most people's life, and, and it really is no longer. And as a result, you're, you're noticing lots of smaller churches that are dying, or, or they're just closing their doors, or um, they're just no longer there. The level of evangelicals in America is about the same, but, but the number of churches is decreasing. And as the number of small churches are dying, people in small churches are flocking to larger churches, megachurches. So megachurch numbers are increasing. Smaller churches are dying. But here's the problem. I'm not, I have nothing against megachurches. I actually think uh, the first church was a megachurch, by the way. Um, so, you know, immediately there was thousands of, congr- of converts in, in the early church. I'm nothing against megachurches. But here's the problem. The problem is because so many small churches are dying and so many people are flocking to large churches, people feel like they don't have a place. They don't feel like they have a, a thing that they're needed, a place at the table oftentimes in some of these, these larger churches. And having worked at a larger church, it's, it's a really tough puzzle to figure out how to get people to belong and find their place in the body when you have thousands of people. The problem that has happened out of that is that we've professionalized ministry, We have a a very small group of people within a large group of people and that small group of people are doing the majority of the ministry. They're looked to to do the ministry, to be the ministers. They're looked to the ones with the counsel and with the wisdom and with the biblical knowledge and so everyone goes to those few people and and then there's thousands of people on the outskirts that aren't really functioning within their gifts. There's a progression to this that I think is really unfortunate. Okay, Um, It starts with people being inactive in their faith. People are inactive in their faiths, so church leadership starts to become more reliant on staff and programming in order to do ministry. And so what that does is it creates a church where people look to the staff and look to the pastors to, to be their source of ministry, and then the, the, the congregation itself starts to shrink and shrivel. It becomes more production-oriented, which means people become ultimately more spiritually dry. And as the church begins to dry out, it either becomes a production or it dies, I see this as the biggest, I'm not just overstating this, okay. I see this as the biggest hurdle for the Western church right now, in this moment, is deprofessionalizing ministry. There's a place, I wouldn't have a job, okay. there's a place for professional ministry, there's a place for someone to be full-time, we see it in the Bible, but finding a way to access the key, I think, is the body. How do we access the body's life? the body life that Paul seems to point to as the the primary way that we grow as a church. It's interesting, I have these conversations oftentimes with people that used to be in the military, and they all say the same thing. They say, you know, um, sometimes I just wish I was in the military again. I just miss it. And I say, well, what did you miss about it? And they said, I knew exactly what my purpose was. I knew exactly what my job was. I knew exactly how my job mattered. I knew exactly my place. I was part of something bigger than myself. And then they leave that environment and they come into our individualistic Western society where we're all about ourselves and about building our own lives and being part of our own story. And there's an emptiness there. The church is meant to be, in a sense, like the military is. Everyone should feel like they have a place, everyone should understand why they're there, everyone should understand what they bring to the table. What their function is, and everyone should should be excited to live because they're actually living for something greater than themselves. The problem is, we not only have we professionalized ministry, we've we've individualized to the church. We've created an environment where people are obsessed with their own individual growth and individual spirituality. We were made for mission. We were made to be part of something bigger. Okay. So last week we looked at Ephesians chapter four. By the way, I'm just gonna clear the room. I'm okay with noise. Okay, I'm okay with it. We're fine. I have kids. A lot of the noise will probably be my kids, so it's fine. Um, This is just something we got to do once in a while is have our kids be in here with us. So a little bit of review. Last week we looked at Ephesians chapter 4, and we talked about this reality that when you get saved and baptized, you actually are not being saved and baptized into some kind of an individual experience. You're being saved and baptized into a living organism that is made up of the entirety of the church. You are part of something bigger. Whether you realize it or not, whether you tap into it or not, you are part of the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the building of Christ. We have many different pictures of it in the New Testament. And you have a part to play in that body. And we talked about that the purpose of the body is to carry out the will of the head. And the head is Christ. So this is our function as the church is to be a body that Ephesians 4 said would grow up unto maturity so that we can be equally yoked with the head, which is the mind of Christ to carry out the will of Christ. The church is literally the hands and the feet of Christ and his mission. It is literally the continuation of the earthly physical ministry of Jesus Christ. The reason that Acts said that um, when, or that Luke said in the book of Acts that when he wrote Acts It was the continuation of everything Jesus began to do and teach is because we, the church, are the continuation of everything Jesus began to do and teach. We are the next chapter in his physical earthly ministry, empowered by the Holy Spirit and united by the Holy Spirit. So we covered that last week. The body's primary function is to build itself up, that the different members are to build itself up unto maturity, which is Being equally yoked with the head. So that's all review. The question that I felt like was still lingering last week that I wanted to do a part two to that is what does that look like practically? Like what does that actually look like for us to function as body parts, body members of Christ um, in order to build up the body? And I think Paul answers that in another text. and I think that other text is 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. So that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning. 1 Corinthians 12 is probably the paramount passage on the the diversity and the multiplicity of the gifts of the body. So I really want to dive into that. Um, We're going to cover two chapters, and I know we have our kids in here, but I think we can do it. I really think we can handle it. Uh, We'll we'll try to fly through it. I gave you an outline so that you can hopefully track along. We're going to have some some slides up here to help you track along as well, but I really want to cover chapter 12 and 13 because Paul meant for them to be together. In fact, actually, chapter 12 through 14 is all one thought. It's all one literal unit by the Apostle Paul. A little bit of context for 1 Corinthians, for those of you that haven't read it before. 1 Corinthians is a pastoral letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth, a church that was authentic in their faith, but misguided in their practice, a church that was functioning within church life in a way that was um, not honoring to the Lord, and he's really spent large amounts of the book up until this point correcting different areas of church abuse. They were abusing communion. They were abusing, uh, maybe abuse is a hard word, but, but they, were, they, were, they were not respecting one another. They were not operating in an orderly manner. Um, they were getting drunk off of the communion. They were gorging themselves like pagans on the communion feast so that other people that came late would have no food to eat. It's just like ridiculous stuff. Uh, There was a deep ingrained sin within the church, and so Paul is writing a response letter, a pastoral letter, to correct some of this misbehavior within the church. So that's the context of of this book. One of the issues that Paul's addressing that we're going to look at here was the misuse of the spiritual gifts, okay? The misuse of the spiritual gifts. Uh, Go figure, the natural trajectory of humans is to try to find a way to put themselves above other humans, we know this? This is natural human behavior. And so what the Corinthian church had, do, had done, it seems, was found a way to use the gifts to make themselves look more spiritual than others. And they had categorized the gifts into such a way where they said the gifts that are more outward and flashy and, and, and external, those gifts show that you're more spiritual than other people. Paul's addressing this problem in 1 Corinthians 12. So that's what we're going to look at. Let me give you the outline You have it already, but I'll just run through it really quick. The outline of the the two chapters just goes like this. First, Paul's going to need to note the importance of understanding the gifts. Secondly, he's going to note the importance of the spirit in the gifts. Then, the importance of the unity and the diversity of the gifts. And lastly, the most important element of the gifts. So that's our trajectory. So if you have your Bibles open, let's just dive right in. First of all, the importance... Of understanding the gifts in verse one, chapter twelve. Paul says, "Now concerning spiritual gifts." So he's giving away his subject matter here, brothers. I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Hey, buddy. Sorry, you keep going. What's going on? Why? A radio. Oh. Okay. Check, check. We're going to have to turn the reverb off, though. Can you bring me the little tablet? Okay, so I sound like I'm in a big room, and I'm not. So verse 1 and 2, okay, just pause. We're a church plant. That's what we do. Check, check. There I am, nice and dry. Okay, so verse 1 and 2, he's addressing... The body, and he's addressing the, the subject matter, and that is gifts. Now, we've got to start by asking the question what are these gifts that the, that the Apostle Paul's talking about? Now, you probably take for granted um, what the spiritual gifts are because you maybe have been at church and you've heard that language, um, but we need to define it. We need to define what spiritual gifts actually are. So, Paul uses two different words in the New Testament to describe gifts. The first one he uses here in verse 1, and it's the word pneumaticon. Okay, or pneumatikos, and pneumatikos has the word pneuma in it, which you should remember. It's the Greek word for spirit, pneuma, okay? Spirit, pneumaticon, spiritual gifts, could also be translated spiritual person. So these gifts, these things are something that comes from the spirit. The primary word that he uses for the gifts is actually charisma, okay? Charisma, and charisma is where we get the word charismatic. So if you've been to a church that is very focused on the gifts, Pentecostal, charismatic, that's where they get it, from the Greek word for the gifts, Charisma, or charisma. Now charisma has a very important root word I want you to remember. The root word is charis, C-H-A-R-S, charis, and charis is the Greek word for grace. So the gifts, the spiritual gifts, at their very core are meant to be considered grace gifts. In fact, that's how you should translate them. Paul is referring here to the grace gifts, the gifts of grace. Okay, that's what these things are. Now, the word for gifts, charisma, is used all throughout the New Testament. And it's not only used for some kind of things that we do as a body. It's used in referring to salvation. It's used in referring to the Holy Spirit. It's used in referring to any kind of gift of grace that God has bestowed upon the church. That's the basic idea. Now, I want you to remember from last week in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul brought up this illustration of uh, a warrior king that went off into another land and conquered his enemies. and on the way back, he brought a procession into town. He was bringing the captives that he'd set free, and he was bringing a wagon full of the plundered treasure from the enemy. and those were the gifts. And he gave out those gifts to uh, to all of the people. So that's the picture of what happened at Pentecost. Jesus conquered death, conquered sin. Sent the Holy Spirit, and as he sent the Holy Spirit, he poured out gifts unto men. They're grace gifts, they're given to us by the Holy Spirit. So, my definition of spiritual gifts is this the gracious, intangible working of the Spirit, acting through each member of the body for the purpose of its own building. Unto maturity, okay? That's essentially what spiritual gifts. So let me give a little bit more definition to what spiritual gifts might mean. And there's a lot of controversy on this, okay? And we really don't know exactly what some of these gifts are. We we do our best to try to figure it out. But it could be that gifts could partly be uh, natural abilities. Gifts could be natural abilities that the spirit prompts you to bring under his control. So part of what I think spiritual gifts are, are actually things that you could do naturally before you came to Christ. And when you came to Christ, God, by the Spirit, prompted you to bring that thing into the, his kingdom uses. Okay, so for example, um, Mike Daniels, he he could sing. It's genetic. He's genetically able to sing. Orion Emil is is genetically able to sing. Many of you are able to sing. Um, Now, that was something that was naturally given to you, but when you got saved, the spirit prompted you to bring that gift maybe into a kingdom use. Okay, so that becomes in that moment spiritual. Because what is spiritual? Spiritual is anything that's under the rule and reign of Christ for his purposes. Uh, Leadership is a natural ability that people have both in the world and in the church but when you're a christian the spirit might prompt you to use your leadership for the kingdom it becomes a spiritual gift in that moment or teaching we have many really gifted teachers here like steve Roby and and Teresa, that that are are teachers as their vocation and then they bring that gift into the church and utilize it for the kingdom so that's one dimension i think of what spiritual gifts are another dimension is this gifts could also be supernatural abilities That the spirit has given you access to as a believer so these are things that you maybe didn't have prior to your conversion and god drew them out and brought them out abilities that god brought out in you after you became a christian we don't know exactly um, what all of those are because we don't have an exhaustive list but it could be things like we're going to look at in a minute words of wisdom prophecy depending on how we define it discernment mercy faith Tongues, translation of tongues, evangelism, hospitality, these all seem to be abilities uh, and giftings that the Spirit gives to the believer after they are saved. The third thing, gifts could be, uh, and by the way, I'm not saying it's only one of these, I'm saying it's probably a blend of all three of these. Gifts could be a singular supernatural happening That the Spirit brings about through you as a conduit. So if I go into the hospital and someone is dying and I pray over them that God would heal them and God heals them, what is that? That's a gift. I don't own that gift. I actually don't believe, and we'll drill into this. I don't believe there is a gift of healing that anyone possesses. Anyone that tells you that is usually a phony, okay? There's no gift of healing I possess, but God may give a gift of healing. Through an individual person that has the faith to believe to ask God for that healing, okay? Um, gifts of tongues in the Pentecost sense. I'm not talking about heavenly languages. I'm talking about real languages like we saw in Pentecost. I've heard stories before of people going to uncharted places where the Spirit speaks the language of the tribe through them. I don't think we possess that gift in the way that the apostles did. But I think the gift can do that in one-off senses in in, in particular places. Okay, so I think those are three dimensions of what the gifts might possibly be deemed. We're going to drill more into those in just a minute. By the way, this is more of a, of a Bible teaching. This is not a sermon, okay? If you haven't got that, so just bear with me. This is, this is more of a Bible teaching, not, not a sermon. The second thing I want to ask here is, why is Paul so adamant that the Corinthians understand these gifts? Okay, read it again. He says, concerning the spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed, That word uninformed there is agneo, which is where we get the word agnostic. It basically means to not know. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant here concerning the spiritual gifts. Why? Because when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. Remember... The Corinthians were Gentiles that were converted into Christians. Uh, They were Gentile Greek Roman, Greco-Roman. So they were saturated, steeped in all kinds of pagan worship. Corinth was like one of the worst places you could imagine for pagan worship. There was literally prostitutes on the hill that would come into, the history records would come into, uh, there's kids in here. Uh, I keep forgetting that. You know, there's just all kinds of gnarly stuff that was going on in Corinth. That, that these guys had to deal with. So he's saying, I want you to be informed on the spiritual gifts because I understand that you at once were Greek pagan idolaters, okay? So there's a few, reason he, few reasons he wants them to be educated. First of all, I think Paul here is hinting at his true estimation of their supposed knowledge, okay? The way that he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, I think is meant to be almost kind of insulting, because it seems to be that the Corinthians assumed they were very educated in regards to the spiritual gifts. They thought they had some kind of special knowledge regarding the gifts. And Paul is hinting at the fact that he's like, actually, you guys are ignorant. <laughs> You're ignorant of the gifts. And so for that reason, Paul would say, I'm going to spend three chapters unpacking them to you guys, to the Corinthians. I also think Paul's answering a question. Okay? Corinth, again, was a respondent letter to a pastoral problem. And there's a question that I think had been posed to the Apostle Paul regarding the gifts that I think he's actually answering. I think Rick Boya puts it well. He says the question probably went something like this. The Corinthians had probably written to Paul at one point and said a statement like this. Isn't it true, Paul, that the more spiritual you are, the more gifted you will be? And the more obvious and flashy the gifts, the more gifted you are? You understand that? So, so in other words, they were, they were basically assuming that the gifts that were outward and flashy and impressive, that was the sign of true and deep spirituality. It's very pagan thinking. So Paul is actually answering and responding, I think, to that question. Paul also knows, thirdly, Paul knows their proclivity toward pagan thinking. And I'll, I'll be honest with you guys, we all have a proclivity toward pagan thinking. We, we do. We just do. And there are pitfalls in being gifted. There are pitfalls that come because what oftentimes happens, you get into the church and you find this gift or this ability and people start to praise you for it. And so you start to measure yourself and compare yourself and find a ladder to climb. That's pagan thinking. That's what the Corinthians were doing. They were finding ways to be a notch above others based off of their their so-called giftings. And Paul is trying to combat that. So that's why the gifts are so important. The second thing he brings up here in verses 3 through 7 is the importance of the spirit in the gifts. So one of the questions I think you have to ask is, how do we know if we're getting the gifts right? I don't know about you guys, there's, there's a lot of confusion about this. There's a lot of confusion, there's a lot of division about this. How do we know if we're we're actually operating in our gifts or if we're just operating in our own strength? Paul's answer to that in this text is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the it factor. The it factor in the true functionality of the church. Before we can understand the gifts, we need to understand the Spirit's role in the gifts, and that's exactly what Paul leads us through. So he gives three essential truths regarding the Spirit's role. In the gifts. The first one is that the Spirit gives the gifts solely for the exaltation of Christ. We see that in verse 3. Verse 3, Paul says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is a curse. That's anathema. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, that's curios, Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, that might seem like an obvious statement for Paul to make, okay? He's basically saying, how do you know if the Spirit's working? Well, no one's going to curse Jesus, but simultaneously, he's also saying the sign that the Spirit is working is that Jesus is Lord. His Lordship is the sign that the Holy Spirit is working. So his point here is very simple, is that the Holy Spirit, listen, the Holy Spirit always draws attention to Christ, not himself, To Christ, not himself. His purpose is always the exaltation, if you want to fill in your blank, the exaltation of Christ, not himself. So anytime I see the Spirit working in some kind of a crazy gathering, I go, okay, is Christ exalted in this? Is Christ exalted? Or is there a figure on the stage that is being exalted in this? Because we know the Spirit works to exalt Christ in Christ only. And by the way, one of the most miraculous things that the Holy Spirit does is to make someone who was once at war with Christ call him Lord. That's one of the most miraculous things that the Holy Spirit does. I was sitting, I'm not trying to diss them, but I was sitting in a conversation with a couple one time that was trying this church out, and they were kind of railing me for not exercising the gifts more. And the gal said, we should be raising dead people. And I was like, okay well, you know, everyone's going to raise, you know, there's going to be a resurrection. Oh, yeah, No, no, we should be raising dead people now. And I was like, okay. I was like, you know I, you know what I'd rather see? I'd rather see people that are spiritually dead raised to spiritual life because I actually think that's a greater miracle. You remember when Jesus is dealing with a paralytic and, 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 and he forgives his sins, which was actually the greatest miracle that he could have done, was to forgive his sins. But they didn't believe it and they didn't believe he had the power, the authority to forgive sins. So what does he do? He says, just so you believe... Stand up and walk. He does both. The greater miracle was that his sins could be forgiven. The greater miracle is that our spiritual life comes to life. Calling Jesus Lord is probably the greatest miracle that will ever happen. And you've got to understand that the time in which Paul is saying this, if you were a Jew, to call Jesus Kurios would have been considered the, the deepest of heresies. For a Jew to say Jesus is Lord is to say Jesus is Yahweh to say Jesus is Yahweh is to say there are more than one God. Okay, because they didn't understand the Trinity. They didn't understand that. For the Greek or the Roman to say Jesus is Lord was treason because the saying of the day was, Kaiser Kyrgios, Caesar is Lord. Caesar literally thought he was the God-man sent by God to bring peace to the earth. Sound familiar? So Jesus comes and says, no, I'm the God, man. I've come to bring peace to earth. And to follow me, you have to say, Jesus is Lord. Not Kyrios is Lord. You have, to say, uh, you have to say, what is it? Christos Kyrios. Christos Kyrios. You were basically, in many ways, you were almost committing suicide by declaring that. So one of the most amazing things the spirit of God does is to bring us to a place of the lordship of Christ. And in a day like today where words are cheap, I can say Jesus is Lord and there's no cost for me. The real symbol of the spirit working is when I make him Lord. I make him Lord of my life. I make him Lord of my finance. I make him Lord of my home. I make him Lord of my secret life. I make him Lord of my thoughts. I make him Lord of my intent. That's the work of the spirit. The spirit is always working to glorify Christ and to put him on the throne of your life. That's the primary way that we know when the spirit is working. The second thing Paul says about the spirit regarding the gifts is that the spirit is the source and the orchestrator of the gifts look at verse four he says now there are varieties of gifts he uses that word charisma there varieties of grace gifts but the same spirit there are varieties of service but the same lord Kyrios, speaking of jesus there are varieties of activities or effects but it is the same god who empowers them all in everyone Paul's point here, he's trying to drive at, is that, first of all, the spiritual gifts come from the Spirit. So he's saying that's obvious, okay? But I don't think we always think that way. I don't think we always give the Spirit the credit. Paul's point here is that you don't get the credit to the gifts, you don't get the key to the gifts, you don't get the control. The Spirit is the one that orchestrates. The Spirit is the one that brings them about. And the reason Paul's so adamant about this is because the Corinthians thought that they were really something. (laughs) They thought they really had it. They really had this ability, these abilities that they somehow created in themselves. It's in this moment that Paul switches to the word grace gifts. And I think it's because he wants to remind them that all of these gifts come from him. You know, a tool, I have have lots of tools in my, my garage, they're hanging on the wall, my hammers, my measuring tapes. Those tools don't tell me when I use them. I tell them when I use them. And those tools are to function in the way that I decide to use them, okay? So if you're a hammer, if that's your spiritual gift, then first of all, you need to be careful, (laughs) okay? Because your job is not to hammer people, okay? But if you're a hammer, the Spirit decides when to pick you up. The Spirit is the one ultimately that is orchestrating. That's why he says in verse 11, skip down a little bit, these are, the gifts are empowered by one in the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wells. By the way, the Spirit's a person, okay? we don't. Sometimes we, don't, we talk about the Spirit like he's some kind of a substance. Like, have you received the full blessing? Have you received this, the full filling? It's like, filling? What is he? What am I, a gas tank? Is he a gas? The Spirit is a person. He is a member of the Trinity. He is an individual, and what causes us to be filled with the Spirit is whether or not we're in line with the mind of Christ. He is a person, but he orchestrates. He decides. Paul's point here is also that you don't get to say you don't have a gift. I want you to see a particular word here in verse 6. It says, there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in what? Everyone. Everyone. I think there's some people in church that think they don't have gifts. They think, I don't have a gift. What is my gift? I don't know. You have one because you have the Spirit living within you. Every member has a gift. There's so one more thing I want you to see here in verse four through six. This is really cool. See if you can notice the Trinity here. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same what? Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same what? Lord, which is curiosity, Jesus. There are varieties of activities, but the same God, implied Father, who empowers them all in everyone. Isn't it interesting that that Paul is noting the Trinity, the Father and the Son, and the Spirit. Within the working of the gifts. Why is he doing that? He's doing that because he's saying the sign of the Spirit working in a church is when there is great diversity and unity. You know that the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they work within each other's distinctions. They work within the diversity of each other's character. So the Holy Spirit has a role. The Son has a role. The Father has a role. We see that in the New Testament. And they, each of them are surrendered to each other's roles or submitted to each other's roles, all with the same purpose. He's saying that when you as a church function like that, you're actually reflecting the complexity of the Godhead, which is amazing. That means that if we're a church and we're actually seeing the members and how different each member is and the different giftings and we're finding ways to utilize and access that, to surrender to one another in humility and love, that we are reflecting God's very nature as a Trinitarian God. Isn't that amazing? That's what he's getting at there. The third thing Paul notes about the Spirit is that the Spirit gives the gifts to build the body, not the individual. Look at verse seven. He says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? For the common good your spiritual gifts were not given to you for yourself. They were given to you for the body. That's why Peter says, in 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I love that idea. We're stewards of God's grace gifts. Those gifts were given for the purpose of pouring them back out to the body. That's why we've been given them. Paul moves thirdly into the importance of the unity and the diversity of the gifts. So he's going to double-click on what he just said in verse 7, which is that there's all kinds of diversity within the body, okay? And he's going to do that by giving a list of the gifts. Now, here's where we get in trouble. We get in trouble because we read these and we go, oh, a list of gifts. That must be all the gifts. So I have to find where I'm at in these gifts. Or what some people do, and there's nothing wrong with this, but some people do, they find all of the gifts in the New Testament, they put them in a list, and they say, okay, pick where you're at. That's actually not what Paul's doing here. He's not giving an exhaustive list of every spiritual gift. He's he's giving an example. And the example is that the body is diverse. It's diverse. There's lots of different members with lots of different giftings. And he just randomly picks, I think, nine gifts that were probably on the top of his head to make the example that there's diversity within the body. And those nine gifts are up here. Utterance of wisdom, utterance of knowledge, faith, Gifts of healing. Let's just read the passage. Verse 8. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. So what Paul is getting at here Overly, his overview, his point in saying all of these gifts is what? It is that the Spirit is the one that empowers them, and he empowers them diversely. Everybody has a different gift. Everyone has a completely unique gift set that nobody else shares. Everyone has a different combination. The New Testament authors didn't seem to find it important to give us an exhaustive list of every gift, and it's probably because they didn't even know what all the spiritual gifts were. Okay? A spiritual gift is anything that the spirit has control of, that he uses supernaturally for his glory. And what I want to do just really quickly, I want to go through this list with you and try to unpack what some of these might be. What some of these might be. First of all, he says utterance of wisdom. Utterance of, utterance of wisdom is it's, it's two words. It's logos, which is word, and sophias, which is Wisdom. And it would seem here that this gift is the grace of discerning God's heart and will in a practical decision. Okay? It would seem that he's talking about someone that, by the power of the Spirit, has the ability to help give someone practical wisdom and advice. Biblically discerned, potentially based off of experience. I have people in my life that I go to because I know that the Spirit lives within them, and they have this ability of, 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 of wisdom. Okay, I think of both of my, my father, my father-in-law, I think of my friend, Pastor Jeremy. I think of, of people that I just call and I say, hey, what do you think about this? Because I know they have wisdom, I know the Spirit of God lives within them, I know they know the Word of God, and I think oftentimes the, the Lord will speak an utterance of wisdom through them. Okay, it's not, it's not like I'm reading Scripture in that moment, but, but God can speak oftentimes His truth through people. The second one is the utterance of knowledge. This I would define as the grace of spiritually discerning and communicating biblical mysteries. Okay, this is where I I believe God gives you insight into a passage of scripture. For instance, 1 Corinthians 13.2 says, If I have prophetic powers, Paul says, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. He there refers to this knowledge or this mysteries as having discernment into a biblical uh, text or understanding. So I think at times God will give people the gift of discernment and understanding a particular passage. Number three, faith. This isn't saving faith. Okay, this isn't saving faith. I think this is the Holy Spirit empowering great faith in great measure for a particular moment. Okay, I think of Stephen in Acts chapter 6, okay, where he's literally um, about to be stoned, but yet he has the faith to, to sort of preached the gospel even in the midst of that God gave a supernatural portion of faith to Stephen or Acts 27 when Paul's in the storm he just seems to have this supernatural faith I think at times the spirit can administer a great portion of faith there are people in my life that I I just know that they have great they possess this great faith I think that's a gift I think it's a gift number four he says gifts of healing now this one's controversial It's controversial, but if you look at the grammar, it actually should be translated gifts of healings. And I think why that's important is because I don't think it's a gift any one person possesses. I think it's a gift that God can do at any point in time. So God can give a gift of healing. He can give gifts of healing oftentimes. I don't think it's something that we possess. I think the apostles did, but I think that no longer in this age. Fifthly, the working of miracles... The working of miracles, my definition of that would be the grace of the Spirit affecting or changing the natural laws of nature to conform to his will. Um, prophecy, uh, I really don't, I, I don't want to get in the weeds here on all of these. Uh, prophecy does not mean prophecy like speaking scripture. Uh, prophecy, I think for us in this particular moment, is being able to speak God's word in a timely way, in a timely manner, into a particular situation. I think the Spirit can lead us to do that. Uh, there's three tenets of prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14.3 4, that we're supposed to hold to. Uh, Paul says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. I think that is the, the key for New Testament uh, or, or prophecy that we can operate in. Seven, distinguishing between spirits. That's just discernment, being able to discern if something is of the Lord. Eight various kinds of tongues. Again, a very controversial idea. But it seems like, to me at least, in the New Testament, that there is some kind of a prayer language and that that prayer language is a gift. But it's meant primarily for the individual. If it's used in the body, it has to be interpreted because it needs to be edified, edifying for the whole body. And then lastly, interpretation of tongues, which uh, is, is being able to understand what that utterance perhaps is. Now, don't miss the point here. Don't get bogged down in this. Paul's point is that the body is diverse. His point is that there are lots of different members with lots of different gifts and that we need to see that and embrace that and capitalize on that because that is the key to a healthy body. He gives three resulting implications for the body. Let me back up. He gives three resulting implications for the body after that. Number one, in verse 12, he says every part of the body is connected. Look at this. Verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. You notice how many times he's using the word one. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. I think we see this all the time. We see this all the time because churches, I've said this before, but churches are like sorting bins. They collect people that are like each other. Well, what Paul's point is here is that wh- whether you like each other or not, whether you agree with each other or not, you're all part of the same body. I can take my hand and tie it behind my back, but it's still part of my body. It's still connected. And unfortunately, what we do in churches is we get rid of our diversity because we don't want to fight. So someone, someone thinks a little differently, has a different maybe character, maybe they're more emotionally driven, less pragmatically driven. So Well, why don't you just go to the Pentecostal church where you, where you sort of fit in there, right? If somebody is really into theology or doctrine, well, why don't you just go to reformed churches where you'll fit in there? The problem is is that when you do that, you're actually gutting the body of its purpose, which is diversity. What makes us strong as a body of Christ is diversity. Remember last week I talked about the fact that we are the continuation of Christ's body? Jesus had every spiritual gift. Did you know that? He had every spiritual gift. He was the, the full meal deal. He was the whole package. You and I are not. How many gifts do I have? How many gifts do you have? Maybe one, maybe two, maybe three. That means that if I'm operating in ministry alone, I'm not living up to the body, the head that I'm following. I can't, I can't continue the mission of Christ alone. I need all of you guys. I need everybody here in order to do ministry effectively like Christ did. We need the diversity. Paul uses this image of the body because every single part of the body is important. Every single part of the body is needed. And is one. Second thing he says is every part of the body is different. Every part of the body is different. Verse 17, the whole body, if the whole body were an eye, which is an absurd picture, where would be the sense of hearing? Okay, uh, maybe, maybe a practical way to put that would be like, if everybody in the church was, was super into whatever you're into, then you, you, the, the church would be completely unoperational. If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a singular member, where would the the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Here's the reality. The Spirit does not create homogenous Christians. He creates heterogeneous Christians. There is meant to be a diversity within the body. That's the point. How ridiculous would a body full of arms be? This is what what Paul's trying to get at. I mean, this is a ridiculous picture. Every part is needed. I had this example of this happen to me about two years ago where I was getting my wisdom teeth out, and when I was getting my wisdom teeth out, they hit a nerve because they were so deep and impacted, right? They hit a nerve, and so to this day, I still can't feel my lip, my lower lip, now, I didn't realize how important my lip was until I couldn't feel it anymore. It became it's immensely frustrating to not be able to, like, sometimes i just be, like, chewing on it. And now, and now I have enough feeling back where it hurts more than it did before because it's not, the nerve's not operating right. Who knew that my lip was so important until it was gone? I, I think oftentimes we take certain members of the body for granted until they're gone. Each person was put in the body for a particular reason, just like our bodies were created with a particular reason in mind. Every part of the body matters. It is important. This is, Paul's, this is Paul's point. Verse 22, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on these parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts, i can probably, you can probably guess what those are, treated with greater modesty which are more presentable parts do not require. So I, I think there are people in the church that are hands. They're hands. They're, they're able to really take a beating. I mean, your hands are incredible, aren't they? Your feet are incredible. What your feet can go through. I remember when I was running my marathon, I was just blown away that my feet could do that. I'm like, you're, these things are crazy. When you're working with your hands and you're building up calluses, hands are meant to be out in front. They're meant to be in the dirt. They're meant to be working. They, they, they're incredible things. Not every part of your body can do that. There are people in the church that I think God has created to be hands. They can take a beating. They're out in front. They're digging into hard things. There are people that I think are the feet. They're able to carry a load. I think that's what the elders are called to be. The elders are called to carry the spiritual load and burden of the church. And it's heavy. And not everybody is a foot. And not everybody is a hand. But every single part matters. Every single part is important. He goes on to say, but God has composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked. Verse 25, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. It seems here that the the picture of maturity Paul's painting isn't how good your Sunday production is. It's whether you're close enough and connected enough as a body where if one person is struggling, you're all struggling with them. If one person's having a hard time, then everyone is in that with them. If one person's rejoicing, everyone's rejoicing with them. That's the the level of interconnectivity that Christ has in mind for his church. That, to me, is the bullseye. That, to me, is the key, is that we would be so connected as a family. And that might mean we need to be small. That might mean we need to be a smaller, so we know what's going on in each other's lives, so we can care for one another, so we can understand each other well enough to see what each other's gifts are and then tap in and access those gifts. So that you can see that you have a place, a space, something that is needed of you, that you have a reason to show up on Sunday morning, not just to take in a service, but because you're needed. Because people are depending on you. And can I just say too, when Paul's talking about parts that need covering, There are people in the church, I'm saying the church, I'm not talking about us, none of you, of course. There are people in the church that are frustrating. There are people in the church that are hard to deal with. Paul's saying like, it's worth covering those guys. It's worth covering them in love. It's worth being gracious for them because they do matter. They are an integral part of the body. The word I want you to remember when you think about body life is interdependence. Christ wants us living in such a way where we cannot function on our own. We need each other in interdependence. That means figuring out our diversity, capitalizing on the diversity, but walking with unity, just like the Godhead does. Now, I have no idea how exactly to do all of that. But what I think is amazing is that Paul almost never mentions numbers. He almost never mentions budgets. He almost never mentions buildings. In fact, he doesn't. He doesn't mention any of that. He says, your metric for spiritual maturity is how much you surrender to each other, operate within your gifts, and build each other up with love. That's the metric for a healthy church. That's got to be our goal. It's got to be our goal. If we're going to be a body that is fitting of the head, we have to be a body that is operating within all of our gifts in the diversity and unity. Now, lastly, we'll close with this. The most important, Paul lastly says, the most important element of the gifts how many of you guys have been to a wedding and you heard 1 Corinthians 13 read? There's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. But that's not what it was meant for. Okay? It's beautiful and it's true. And there's a, there's a measure of that within, within a marriage. I think that's great. But 1 Corinthians 13 is the crescendo. It's the point that Paul's driving towards in, in chapter 12. The two have to belong together. His point in chapter 13 is, is, is the thing that all of 12 exists for. He's driving towards this idea. So look at verse 28 and 12. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, help, helping, administrating various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret Then he says this, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now, when I first read that, I went, wait a minute, Paul, aren't you contradicting yourself? Didn't you just say that all gifts matter? All gifts are important. All gifts are are equally valuable. But yet here he says there are higher gifts. What is he referring to? What is he getting at? Well, you have to read chapter 13 to understand what he's getting at. He goes on to say, I will show you a still more excellent way. More excellent than what? More excellent than the giftedness that he's just talked about. More excellent than all of the the body life that he talked about. There's something something greater. There's something more important. There's something deeper than how gifted you are. So look at verse 1 of chapter 13. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind it does not envy or boast it is not arrogant or rude it does not insist on its own way it is not irritable or resentful it does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth love bears all things believes all things hopes all things endures all things love never ends now listen to this as for prophecies they will pass away as for tongues they will cease as for knowledge it will pass away For we know in part and we prophesy in part. Paul's point is that the gifts are a means unto an end. The gifts are only for this age, the age in which we wait for his return. When he returns, the gifts cease. We don't need the gifts anymore in heaven because Christ is in our midst. There's nothing to build up. We'll be in our resurrected bodies. We'll be with him in perfection. So the gifts are really a temporary thing. He says, strive after the thing that is not temporary. He says, verse nine, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, But when the perfect comes, which is the total consummation of Christ's kingdom, when Jesus comes and he he completely establishes his perfect rule and reign, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. What is the partial? It's the gifts. Verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. What's the childish ways he's talking about? It's the spiritual gifts. He's saying that these gifts are great. They're fine. They're important. Don't, don't don't I don't want to undersell them, he says, but they're actually not the point. There's something greater, something deeper, something more important that these gifts exist for. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. Here's a famous verse. So now faith, hope and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Why? Why is faith, hope, and love, love is the greatest? Because faith will end. You don't need faith in heaven. Hope will end. Hope has a forward look, but love is eternal. Love is eternal. So what am I driving at? What is Paul driving at? Paul is driving, it doesn't matter how gifted you are. If the purpose of the giftedness is not to sink in deeper to the eternal love of God. It doesn't matter how gifted you are if your giftedness is not because you love the person that you're blessing and building up. Paul is writing to a group of people that have overemphasized giftedness for their own gain. They've they've, they've seen gifts as a way for them to put themselves above another person. He says, but the key is not the giftedness. The key is the love, the self-sacrifice. The key is that you are giving yourself fully for the body of Christ because it's his bride. So this is where I think we've missed it. This is where I think we've missed it. I think that we take the spiritual gifts and we go, okay, the the key to being a healthy church is for everyone to know their gifts. Okay, that's not true. The key is that we know our gifts, but the real key is that we give our gifts out of love for each other. And the only way we can give our gifts out of love for each other is if we are filled with love from God himself. It all comes back. The linchpin, the nucleus, the main reason for the church is that we would sink deeper into an understanding of God's love. So 1 Corinthians 13 is the crescendo of everything that he's saying. He's saying, why does that matter? It matters because maturity is not defined by giftedness. Maturity is defined by how much you are operating out of the love of God. My prayer, my desire, my heart would be that we are a church that isn't operating the gifts because we know we should or because we're trying to climb some ladder. We don't operate in the gifts because we want to be really spiritual or we want to be really mature. We we operate in the gifts because we're so overwhelmed by God's love for us that we want to pour ourselves into his body. That we love the church because the church is the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the building of Christ. That it's a a... a, a Because of what he's done for us, we want to love the church. That has to be the reason. The way that we do that is we drill deeper into the gospel. We drill deeper into who he is and what he's done. And that we respond to that. So let me just end with this. Some questions that I think you guys should be asking. We should all be asking ourselves. Four questions you should be asking. Number one, what are my gifts? What are my gifts? Have you sought the Lord about this question? And I think most of you probably haven't. I know because I always ask you. <laughs> and you're like, I don't know. Yeah, have you sought the Lord about that? What What are your gifts? I mean, how has God put you together? Are there natural abilities that God's given you that he, he can bring under his control? Are there supernatural things that the Lord um, likes to do or often has put on your heart to bring through you? Have you searched the scriptures? Have you studied this? Have you sought out wisdom from people that know you about what your giftings might be? The people people that know you, that the Spirit lives within, they can help you figure that out. So what are your gifts? Secondly, have I surrendered my gifts fully to his purposes, not my own? So some of you know what your gifts are, but have you fully surrendered those? Are you investing your natural God-given talents, treasures, experiences, and resources? Are you actively practicing and strengthening the gifts that you know God has given you? Are you utilizing your gifts as a means of hiding sin or glorifying self? That's that's a big one. Sometimes giftedness is the biggest and easiest cloak for rebellion. Thirdly, what gifts might the Lord be calling you to seek or me to seek out or develop? Are there areas that God wants you to step into in your gifts that maybe you aren't? You know, be careful that people don't pigeonhole you. By the way, say oh, you're just you're just the you're just the chair setter up guy. That's you. There's nothing wrong with that. But maybe there's areas that God wants to develop in your giftedness that he wants to use and utilize for his body. And lastly, and most importantly, how can I humbly and sacrificially utilize my gifts to equip, train, and encourage the gifts of others for the building of the body? Maturity is when you no longer just look at your own life, you look at the lives of others. Maturity is when you say, okay, how can I help other believers develop their gifts? walk in their body, find their place in the body. I'll be honest, I don't have the resource, the understanding, or the wisdom to know how to graft in everyone in this body into, a, into their place. I don't have the, the, the time or the ability to figure out what every single person's gifts are and figure out how to use them. But those of you in this room that have walked in your giftings, have walked in body life, can help those that haven't. That's part of spiritual maturation is you take ownership and responsibility for someone else's spiritual development. So I would invite you guys to pray and ask those four questions this week to consider, to consider those questions. I truly think the bullseye for us in 2021, the bullseye for us has to be functioning within the body in the way that God intended. God wants to release, I think, the giftings that he's placed in you as individuals, release those gifts on each other. I don't think that just looks like church programs. I don't think that just looks like setting up chairs. I think that's part of it. I think it looks like you guys pressing into each other's lives, encouraging each other in the gospel, meeting outside of Sunday mornings, meeting in each other's homes, functioning within those gifts. And that's my prayer. Would you guys stand with me real quick? Father, we just stand open-handed. This morning, we, we don't really know, God, exactly what and how you want to utilize, Father, the members in this church, but we just ask that we could step into that. God, there's so much need right now in our community. I'm just so thankful for how these guys already have stepped into those roles. I pray you would release us, Lord, and give things to go and to, to bless and love and help rebuild. I pray, Lord, you would release us in our giftings in this, in this church on Sunday mornings, in small groups, in Bible studies, Lord, in relationship. I pray you would release, Lord, the gift of, of, of encouragement, discernment, helps, administration, whatever you have, Lord, whatever it is, that you would release it, God. That, that people that, that have, have not seen their part in the body would step into that. That they would see that they have a part to play, that they would feel a deep meaning knowing that they're needed in the body. Lord, thank you for the diversity that you've brought into this church. We pray that we would uh, operate within it, God. Lord, we pray that you would see us through this hard time, God. In the smoke, we continue to lift up all those that have been displaced, that their homes have been lost. Help us to know how to continue to love them. Just pray for opportunities, open doors for relationships, God, in those areas. Lord, we just want to be a church that steps into what you have for us, God. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would be with us in the days to come. Lord, Jesus' name. Amen.